This episode of Women on the Rise is sponsored by The Riveter, a workspace designed for women and their advocates. Stay tuned to the end for more information about how you can join The Riveter's movement and ambition. It's important to me to know like when I'm talking to somebody about your mindset matters, that what you think creates your emotions and your emotions create your behavior. I'm not just making that up. I'm not just telling them that because, hey, man, it worked for me. I'm telling them that because there is a large body of evidence that shows there is statistical significance to this, right? That this is actually the way things work. Welcome to Women on the Rise. I'm your host, Laura Dolch, and each week I talk to thriving women about the practical self-care strategies they use to fuel their success and pursue what's most important to them in their careers and lives. We get real about topics like healthy eating, exercise, sleep, stress, time management, happiness, and productivity, while busting myths about work-life balance and being perfect along the way. My goal each week is to uncover a new insight or practical strategy that you can immediately apply to your life to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Sasha Hines, a Harvard, Columbia, and University of Pennsylvania-trained developmental psychologist and expert in positive psychology, lasting behavioral change, and the science of getting unstuck. Now, I should warn you, I'm a total psychology nerd. Many of the things that Sasha and I talk about are tools that she and I both use in our work with coaching clients to help them create sustainable behavior change. In fact, nothing has benefited the field of coaching more in recent years than the study of positive psychology. And Sasha, Sasha was one of the first to earn a master's in applied positive psychology. So from my perspective, I might as well have been interviewing Beyonce. My positive psychology fangirl status aside, you'll love my chat with Sasha for its actionable insights for feeling freer, living more in alignment with your values, stopping self-sabotaging behavior and making changes that stick. Enjoy the interview. So why don't we start here? Because not everyone is as familiar with the work of positive psychology as I am, could you talk a little bit about what positive psychology is and why you were initially drawn to it? Sure. Positive psychology is actually a very new field in psychology. And I don't think a lot of people realize that, but it's it's almost, I mean, it's a nascent field. It's only been in existence for about 20 years, a little less than 20 years. There's a long philosophical and theological frankly, tradition and debates that have been going on for, you know, I don't know, you know, the last 2,500 years about (laughs) conversations like, what does it mean to live a good life? What does health mean from an emotional and psychological perspective? I mean, to some extent, they're philosophical questions, but the science, social science of positive psychology really only began 20 years ago. And when Dr. Seligman, who was at the time he was president of the American Psychological Association, and he gave his keynote address was asking the psychological community why for every five articles that are written about disease, dysphoria, you know, dysfunction, personality disorders, do we only have one article written on well-being? We, we just know so little. We have so little empirical evidence of what makes people well, what promotes psychological health beyond the baseline of zero. Just for listeners who don't know Dr. Seligman, we're talking about Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, right. Who developed this field, really. Exactly. So there were a lot of researchers who were doing research on well-being and happiness. Like, I mean, that's a larger conversation of people that study well-being versus study happiness. And there's that's right. a whole debate <laughs> within the sure. field. That's maybe a little in the weeds. But so, you know, Ed Diener was doing it already. Um, Carol Riff and Bert Singer also had a model of... Um, 
of psychological well-being already established. So people had been doing it, but there were these tiny little pockets of people that were studying them. And it was very much on the fringes of what we call the business as usual psychology and research. And he really threw down the gauntlet to the community and said, if you think about the bell curve of sort of normal human functioning, right? We have probably 20%, and that's about the statistic. It's about 20%, 17, I think it's like 17, 18% um, of the American population has at any given time, like a clinical issue, clinical depression, anxiety, personality disorder, like some psychological dysfunction. 80% of the population is functional, and I would describe that 80% as the walking wounded, right? Like, mm-hmm. And we're all part of this where we are psychologically functional. We have functional lives. We go to work. We make a living. We have relationships. But we have suffering and pain and sabotage ourselves and do all sorts of things that make us feel terrible. And there wasn't a field in psychology and there wasn't psychological research that was specifically to help the 80%, which actually makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, and I've always thought of it, maybe you can agree or disagree with this, but I always thought of positive psychology as sort of like preventive care for the mind, right? Absolutely. (laughs) It's all about resilience, right? I mean, that's really at the heart of it. Yes. So, I mean, I think it's very akin to in the medical world, we have much more emphasis nowadays on preventative care and alternative sort of alternative practices, right? Like how do we help people prevent disease and disorder? And I think it's only growing in the medical world. And the psychological treatment and care was sort of designed in that old school Western medicine model, which is we treat acute problems. We don't treat the, you know, getting healthier, not really interested in you. We just wanted to get you to a baseline of feeling okay. Yeah. So how do you, in your work, there's so many, I have so many questions. I want to come back to the sabotage thing because self-sabotage is a big part of what I see, Mm -hmm. obviously in my, the clients that I work with. But before we dive into that, how has your study of positive psychology sort of informed the way that you help your clients create change in their lives or transformation, however you want to frame that? Um, in a number of ways. I think that the fact that there is a field of psychological study that provides an empirical basis for the work we do as coaches, I think positive psychology has helped the field of coaching more than anything else because it's really highlighted that there are effortful, actionable things that we can do to increase our well-being. So, you know, 50% of our temperament is genetic. We have a kind of genetic set point. 10% of our well-being is our circumstances, the externalities of our life, our jobs, our um, you know, marital status, where we live, etc. And 40% of our well-being is malleable. We have control. We can actually move the needle. And that's a lot. That's huge. I'm so glad you said that too, because I feel like I often struggle with like reminding women like, no, no, you actually have control over so much of this, so much more than you realize. And I think the the salient piece of that, and, and that's research that's been done, by the way, by a really brilliant woman named Sonia Lumirsky, who works at um, UC Riverside, I think. Anyway, she's in the UC University of California system. Anyway, she's one of the sort of early positive psychology researchers. And what I think the the most salient piece of that is 
only 10% is actually the external reality of our life, right? That's so tiny. Yeah. And we think 90% of our well-being is created by the external factors of our life, but it's the opposite. The exact opposite is true. We have so much more control over increasing our well-being and feeling better and living a more meaningful life than we actually think we do, which is a huge part of why I got into the work that I do. Because I just think it's like, what's more exciting than this, right? We have, we can create something here. Like that's so exciting. Um, And I think the other piece of it is, you know, really there's a long tradition of sort of snake oil salesmen in the fields. Someone's selling you like, you're going to feel better, right? (laughs) This isn't a good sales tactic from the beginning of time. (laughs) And I think it really, for me, it's important to me to know like when I'm talking to somebody about your mindset matters, that what you think creates your emotions and your emotions create your behavior. I'm not just making that up. I'm not just telling them that because, hey, man, it worked for me. I'm telling them that because there is a large body of evidence that shows there is statistical significance to this, right? That this is actually the way things work and that there are really brilliant people like Carol Dweck who show empirically how having a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, for example, can determine the outcome for us, right? Whether we believe that our intelligence is fixed or something that we can develop and grow determines our long-term outcome. Yeah. Well, and that, I think what you just said completely explains the experience that I mentioned to you over email that I had when I read Dr. Solomon's book, uh, Flourish, which was, you know, as a coach, I think sometimes you feel like, um, yeah, I mean, like the snake oil salesman, or, or you're perceived in some respects when you talk about positive psychology, and when you talk about this behavior change and mindset change, people are like, eh, whatever. But then to have this research, to be able to say and to read about this and, and think, oh my gosh, like this just reinforces everything that I believe to be true and everything that I've observed in all of the women that I've worked with. And it was so amazing for me to see that. And, and to your point, in terms of helping people understand why it's so important and that that it's a real thing. But actually, I have a question related to that. Why should people care? Like at the end of the day, you know, Mm -hmm. I think well-being is like this really big concept. So why do you think people should care about using these tools if, you know, their life is just, they're fine. They're, you know, they're fine. So why should they care? (laughs) I don't think they should. I don't think you have to care at all. Um, I think if your life is just fine and you like it that way and you're content, then I think that's great. And in fact, I think that the sort of the dark side of this sort of self-improvement world is this constant feeling of not enough, right? Like there's always something to be better, smarter, faster. And if you have that kind of personality, it can be really toxic. And again, you know, this is why I think research matters because there, there are people out there, um, Gabrielle Ointigen, she's at NYU, and she did some really interesting research that was showing like sometimes dreaming about things doesn't actually help us because it makes it like in our mind, we've already created it. So we don't actually go after it. But I think that the point being is if your life is content, and I mean, that's the goal. Like the goal is self-acceptance. The goal is contentment. The goal is feeling like, I, I, I look back on my life and that was great. I'm 
happy about this. I, I think I did, you know, I've had a great life. Um, so I think that that's a good place to be. Often what I think happens is that people will say, well, yeah, I mean, my life's, my life's good. My life's pretty good. But if you, if they look around their life, they'd see buffering or, you know, kind of what I call emotional novocaine all over the place. Mm. Over drinking, overeating, over TV watching, over gossiping, like all of that stuff is probably there. So when we have a lot of that stuff going on in our life, that's a good red flag. That's a good litmus test. Like, hmm, maybe I'm not as happy as I think I am, or I'd say I am. That's so great. Actually, that's really useful, I think, to have sort of specific things to yeah to look for. Like what what are you actually what are you doing? And and are those signs that maybe something isn't as great as you thought <laughs> in terms of your your internal sense of well-being. Yeah, that's that's true. Well, so thinking about the ways that uh, people self-sabotage, especially as it relates to health, since that's of course, you know, my area of interest, what do you see coming up around that specifically with self-care? I mean, I think that we have a lot of cultural narratives, especially for women that get in the way of taking care of ourselves. And I think that that has to do with being caregivers and everyone rolls their eyes when someone says the story like, well, you got to put your own oxygen mask on first. Totally. <laughs> Everyone's like, yeah. cue the eye roll. Um, <laughs> but I think that... But it's really because everyone's like, yeah, 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 but... You know, yeah, 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 but my kids need X, Y, Z, or yeah, 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 but I have to take care of all these things, right? And I think it it requires a lot of conviction to take care of yourself first. Like it, it takes a lot. Like you have to firmly believe that it's important. Do you believe it's important for you? I do, and like I genuinely do. But I can still find myself going down the road where I'm like, you know, oh, I gotta, you know, I I think for women, the list of priorities feels very murky for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. How do you sort through that then? How do you personally kind of deal with ordering those priorities on a day to day basis? Um, I think so much of it is the phases of our life too. I think that that's something that we don't we don't pay enough attention to that. Like the cyclical nature of, I mean, I think women so much of our biology is on a rhythm, right? Whether it's like menstrual cycle or you know we, the way that we give birth, there's sort of like a rhythm and a process of it. And every stage of our life and every you know cycle in the year isn't the same. Right. And there's seasons for things. So there's a time when you're a a mom of a young baby, and that's what, you know, your self care looks very different than it does when you're a mom of a four year old. And it's the same thing when you're a mom of a 17 year old. Or if you don't have children or, you know, whatever, like you are not married and now you're married. It's like all of these things that are in. Um, for women, I think that there's like there's this real sort of cyclical nature of it, and I don't think men wrestle with the same thing in the way that women do, right? Where like our lives are very kind of tied to these seasons, and I think it requires a lot of cognitive management to stay the course despite the the external realities of our life changing and shifting because they do tremendously. Absolutely. Well, and I, I think I always think of it as giving yourself the grace to be flexible with it because that to me, that's the only way that it that it stays. Because I think what happens to at least what I've observed is that women in particular have this very rigid um this is how I should be doing self-care, right? This is mm-hmm. how I should be 
eating or exercising or whatever. This is what a healthy person looks like. <laughs> yes. Right? Instead of saying, what is it that I need in this moment? Right? In this moment of my life, in this moment of my day, whatever that is, to feel the way that I want to feel or, or to do the things that I want to be able to do in my life, whether that's to your point, you know, taking care of an infant, you know, or rising through the, you know, the corporate ranks, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think for it's, you know, self care also is just such a big term. Like, what does that mean? You know, it means like it means a bubble bath for someone and it means uh, something completely different for somebody else, right? I mean, it, it can mean a whole host of things. So I think getting clear about it for you personally is also incredibly important. And I think a good question to always ask yourself is, is like, does this feel like love to me? Mm. Right? Because sometimes love is taking a rest and sometimes love is sticking with what you're doing and, and kind of going that extra mile, right? Because you know yeah. you're going to feel so good afterwards. So it's like, it always changes. It depends on what the context is, right? It's so hard to say, you know, there's not sort of a hard and fast rule. Um, I mean, I would say like my number one self-care, like what does self-care mean to me more than anything? It means managing my thinking. Well, that makes sense given what you do, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Because, you know, all of our emotions come from our beliefs so and our thoughts. So, yeah. if, like, I've got to be like really vigilant about rooting through, like, is that thought serving me? Is that thought getting me somewhere? Is that thought making me feel dreadful? Right. I really you have to be vigilant about um, working through this. And I would say one of the things I think is, so ironic, but so tough for women and men do this too, but I see women doing this more often than men, which is setting the bar so darn high. They know they're not going to follow through on it. And the act of not maintaining that inner integrity is death by a thousand cuts. Yes. Yeah. I like to call that creating the grand plan, right? I mean, which a lot of high achieving women do create these grand plans that they can't possibly <laughs> achieve. Right. Right. And so it's like you get the cut of, you know, not following through. So then you have less trust with yourself. And that is not self-care, right? That's yeah. not self-care. And then you have also the hangover of not feeling good, right? You're like, I don't trust myself. Now I don't feel good. And then when we don't feel good, what do we do? We always end up with some verse, whatever your emotional novocaine is, I guarantee you will be indulging in it. Yeah, totally. And this is how the cycle continues. And then you feel really, really bad. And then you're like, okay, now I'm going to make another grand plan to get me out of this bad feeling. And you do the same thing over and over again, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, and that reminds me of something that you mentioned in your bio about sort of struggling with perfectionism. And mm -hmm. so I guess my question is, can you talk a little bit about that experience and, and how you have you know, managed it over your life? Like, has it improved and how did you improve it? <laughs> well, I think that women and not women, I think this is, you know, universal human issue. Um, I think it just has like, there's particular personalities that sort of gravitate towards this, but I think that perfectionists use achievement as an emotional buffer, right? Like they use achievement to make themselves feel better. And then they wow. That's <laughs> sorry. That's like really hitting home for me. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. And then you grab the brass ring. It feels good for about three minutes, and then you're right back down to where you were before. And now you need another hit. 
So you go after another achievement. And then the same thing happens, right? You grab the brass ring, but you don't really feel good. And so everybody's looking at you like, I don't get why you don't feel better about all this because like, look at what you've done. It's so amazing, but you don't feel that great because the achievements aren't coming from a place of self-acceptance and like, I like who I am and wouldn't this be fun? Wouldn't it be cool to see what's possible? Wouldn't it be cool to see what I can accomplish? You know? this sort of in really enjoying this process of growth and development, which is like, that's our only job as human beings on this planet. That's what we're supposed to be doing is growing and developing. That's it. So, but when we're achieving to feel better about ourselves, right? It's like hustling for our worthiness every time and it never works. And so we just, we have to keep grabbing at it more and more and more. And until you solve that underlying kind of void, it's never going to feel good. And it's such a tragedy, right? Because you're like, <laughs> they're like, you're doing achieving all these great things, right? Like you're doing all this great stuff. It should feel awesome. <laughs> totally. What was it for you? What was the thing that you kept grabbing for? I think the wake up call for me was finishing my PhD and having that same experience, which mm-hmm. is, I felt awesome for five minutes, and then I was like, oh, wow, right? right? <laughs> another, <laughs> another degree. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh. And the PhD I did while I was, um, I had my kids. So I, you know, I took some time off and I came back. Like it was a real exercise of grit, right? Passion and perseverance towards a long-term goal. That's what it was. Um, People that have a PhD, the only thing that they've really demonstrated is grit. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, I mean, that's something, but yeah. And maybe they know more about like a tiny little sliver of something else, uh, (laughs) some area of expertise, but but they really have demonstrated grit because it is a long and arduous process, right? And I kept saying to myself as I was doing this, as I was finishing my PhD, like when I'm done, it's going to feel so awesome. Like I will have arrived. I will be an expert. I will be a colleague and not an apprentice. You know, you have all of these ideas of how it's going to feel. But we're very bad at predicting how things are going to make us feel. Human beings are terrible at it. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse, but we are absolutely lousy at predicting how things... We, we you know, think the good things are going to make us feel better than they do. And we think that the bad things are going to make us feel way worse than they actually do. Mm-hmm. The truth is, is that we adapt to almost everything. So we get to a new level of achievement, we adapt. We, get, we have some defeat, we adapt. Like it's just the way we're built. It's actually, but the truth is we're enormously resilient. I mean, look at the world. Like look at what we created. Human beings are unbelievably resilient and we never give ourselves enough credit for it. And actually like the fact that we are so resilient, like instead of looking at it like, oh, it's so annoying that I adapt to all these new levels of achievement and they don't really feel good. Like that stinks, right? It's also, we can look at it the other way around, which is, yeah, but all these other really terrible things have happened to me and I and I like didn't die from any of that stuff either. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Right? So if we can approach our achievement from a completely different place, right? Which is like I'm not going to do the PhD to hustle for my worthiness. Like, well that's terrible because it's never going to work and then it also creates so much drag along the way. Like it makes it so much harder. Mm-hmm. Right? But it's like what do I want to do? for the sake of doing it. Like, what could I do with my life that I actually, along the way, I'm going to be enjoying the process of it. Like enjoying the learning, you know, enjoying the, um, 
the tiny little victories along the way. It's such a different place to come from. Hi there, it's Lara here. Wanted to take a quick break from the interview to invite you to something. So if you don't know much about me, I'm a personal development and lifestyle coach. I work with women on the rise who want more from their work, life, and body. I'm best known for helping women executives and business owners recapture their vibrant health, momentum, and personal power after 5, 10, 15 years of putting everything and everyone on their list but themselves. They say they feel tired, lazy, lacking in confidence, and they're over it. They often come to me around the time of a big life transition, like starting a business, changing careers, celebrating a big birthday, having kids, getting a divorce, or becoming an empty nester. Since 2011, I've helped these women find the courage and confidence to tackle big personal goals, to ask for the promotion and get it, quit energy draining work and personal commitments without guilt, launch successful businesses, travel solo to Tibet, lose weight with flexibility and fun instead of restriction and deprivation, start dating again, run their first 5k or marathon, nail the presentation at the corporate retreat, and hundreds of other life-changing accomplishments. Together, we bring the focus back to mind and body and form new habits that allow you to reclaim your health, happiness, and power so you can make lasting changes and achieve your big dreams in business and in life. If that sounds like something you could use, I invite you to schedule a no-commitment discovery call with me to explore working together. Visit laradolch.com slash discovery to find a time that works for you. That's laradolch.com slash discovery. I'll talk to you soon. Well, and so how do you get to that place? How do you get to that place where you feel, whether it's successful or you know you feel well, again, big concept, right? Mm-hmm. Enough to look at those um, former achievements as opportunities for curiosity and growth instead. I mean, I just think it be, it's a decision that you make. You just have to decide to re, you have to decide to have a, an, a sort of an open mindset about it, as opposed to like these are the this is, you know, um, this is my past. It's I did you know all this went wrong or it whatever, and that's a closed door, and I can't like the one thing I think is so remarkable about human beings and the human mind is we can rewrite any script. You could take a, a list of facts about someone's life and you can write a hundred different versions of what that story looks like. And we get to do the same thing for ourselves. We can rewrite a narrative that feels so much better than the one that we're holding on to that makes us feel terrible. And when you really make a choice, it's really a choice. Like I'm just going to believe that I have the freedom to do it. Right there, that's the beginning of radically changing your life. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. And it's it's it is it's a, it's a decision. And as as I think, I find that some people find that frustrating. Like, well, no, you just have to decide <laughs> because it's like, wait, I'm turning the the reins, giving them the reins on what happens, right? I mean, the control is in their hands, and I think mm-hmm. often um, it feels easier to look to the outside, right, for that. Um, sure. And to realize that no, actually, you're the one who who has control over that. Um, it's, it's, and it's, again, it's lovely to hear that, you know, that research backs that up, right? Like we know this to be true. It's not just Pollyanna wishful thinking. <laughs> no, I mean, there's the mindset literature is just, I mean, I, if, if there's one kind of area of research that I just think is mind blowing, truly, it's all of the mindset stuff. I mean, we can physiologically change our response to food by our mind. So Maybe. crazy, right? I mean, truly, they did a study where um, Aaliyah Crum, when she was still at Yale, I think she's now at Stanford, 
And she did a study where they looked at, um, they gave people a shake. It was the same caloric amount. And in the first week they gave it to them, they had it marketed as the diet drink. So it was like a slim fast shake. And then they did, they took their levels, the participants, they, um, got their levels of leptin and ghrelin. And ghrelin is the hormone that makes you hungry. Leptin is the hormone that makes you feel full. So they saw a little uptick in um, leptin and a little bit of a decrease in ghrelin, which would make sense. They'd eaten something. So they were a little less hungry, a little more full. Okay. The next week, the same participants came in. They were given the exact same shake, exactly the same. But now it was marketed in a package that said like, you know, indulgence, sweet indulgence. And the nutrition facts on the label said it was, you know, 400 calories and 72 grams of, uh, you know, fat and 40 grams of sugar. Like it had all of this, the labeling was like, this is red alert, terrible for you. Right. 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 But it's exactly the same thing they drank the week before. When they tested their ghrelin and leptin levels after they drank it, their levels of ghrelin plummeted and their levels of leptin were like four times as high as they were when they drank it the previous week. So just the fact that their brain believed that they were drinking a very high fat, high calorie, high sugar drink as or shake as opposed to a diet drink, Mm -hmm. their body responded physiologically different mind blowing. I love that. I love that. And I was so, that's so funny. I was recently having a conversation with someone about, um, you know, like having a donut, for example, and like, you know, this list of forbidden foods that a lot of women have and, and how there are many reasons why that doesn't work. But anyway, my point in telling you this is the donut, I'm like, eat the donut, but eat the donut, enjoy the donut, like, (laughs) right. Love the donut and don't feel guilty that you're eating the donut. I mean, to your point, I mean, I, I've always believed that your body reacts differently. And now I know that it does. Yeah. (laughs) In terms of what you're thinking about the food. And I, I mean, there's, it's just, Yeah. Well, that's exactly why, you know, I mean, I grew up in the era of snack wells and all of this stuff, you know, and like, <laughs> they're awful. Um, and it makes so much sense now with the research that we have, right? Understanding why none of that works, right? No, no one lost weight eating snack wells. And this is why, because your brain, our brain was telling our body, you're not full, you're not satiated, but it had nothing to do with the actual food itself. It had to do with our brain saying like, this is a low calorie diet food. Therefore, it's not going to be satiating and filling. And then our body has a physiological response to that. It's unbelievable. Yeah. But it really, I mean, I thought I took my takeaway from the study was <laughs> let go of the diet food. Like, that's number right. one, <laughs> let go that's of the right. diet. That's right. Well, and it's not real food. I mean, that's the other thing that I believe with the snack wells. It's like, it's fake food. Like, your body yeah. doesn't get anything from it anyway. Yeah. So, right. whether you believe that it's diet food or not, like, there's nothing in there to satisfy you anyway. <laughs> exactly. It's right. Re- exactly. There's no upside to having it anyway. No, there's, there's no upside to any of that. Actually, I'm curious because I want to make sure in the time that we have that we talk a little bit more about your sort of self-care. I like to talk to my guests about mm-hmm. what's important to them specifically. Do you do something in the morning or in the evening that like a morning routine or an evening routine that feels I know, like, like self-care? I, 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 um, I used to, uh, and then I had children and I think it's been challenging to kind of get back into the morning routine with my kids because it's like they're so quickly changing all the time and their schedule changed so much. Um, I think it requires a lot of deliberateness for moms to kind of take the reins back for their morning. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and that sort of happens, like, I guess, in sort of in phases, I think. The one thing for me that's non-negotiable is doing um, what I would call is like running models or doing thought models. Like, what am I thinking? What emotion does that thought create? What behaviors does that emotion create? And what's the end result that I'm getting from this thought? Like, where is this cascade of effects taking me? And when I do that every day and I pay attention to my thought models and I'm understanding like, oh, here's where my brain is going. It's so much easier for me to live a deliberate life and to live my life on purpose. Like, okay, this is not, you know, oh, okay, I see why I'm feeling anxious because I'm thinking a thought that's creating anxiety for me, right? Or um, whenever I have an area where uh, I just got back into exercising like more regularly, which feels great and like having a minimum baseline. And my minimum baseline is like, not much, you know, it's totally fine, but it feels really good to be sticking with my minimum baseline and having that kind of integrity with myself. Like, this is just what I do. No matter what, this is the minimum baseline. If I do something above and beyond that, excellent. If I don't, no big deal. You know, and I try to do the exercise before I get to work in the morning. Just, it seems to work better for me, but regardless, like you make the commitment, that's your minimum baseline. That's what you do every day, no matter what. No matter well, what. I love if you don't do above and beyond that, it's whatever. It's not a big deal. It's like, yeah. yeah. And that took a lot of work for me. That took a lot of work because I used to be a high school athlete and then was recruited to play squash in college actually. But um, I had this image of myself, an identity of being an athlete, right? And it's so funny because I find that the clients that... I, I think you did a podcast on this actually with somebody else. I remember that she was talking about being an athlete and how it was hard for her to get back into being an athlete. And I was laughing as I was listening because I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's so true. All, including myself, but all my clients who at one point were had this identity of I am a hardcore athlete. They are always my hardest clients to get to exercise. <laughs> totally, yeah. It's so bizarre, right? Totally. No, I have the same experience. It was Tara Gentili, I think, is okay, probably yes. who you're thinking of. Yeah. And I think, I wonder if it's because, you know, at least my experience of it is it because they have a higher bar for themselves and they become, it's like this all or nothing thing. It's like, That's well, right. if I'm not performing the way that I did in, in college, <laughs> then why bother? Exactly. Like, and that's exactly right. And so then they'll say like, oh, I don't even exercise. And then I ask them, well, what do you do? And they actually do exercise, but it's not real in quotations, real exercise. Right. And so I think, oh gosh, like, isn't that so terrible? Because you're doing exercise, but you don't think it's exercise. You don't even get half the benefit and the joy of it. Right. Yeah. And, and here's another amazing mindset study that was just done. And this one, I think it was also... There's a whole amazing mindset crew that are doing research at Stanford. This one also came out of there. But it was... Um, I just read it maybe a month or so ago. They had a huge study of... It, I, it was like in the thousands of people that had had... Um, they were looking at them for, for a longitudinal study. I don't know how many years it was where they were following them. But they had within the course of the study, a number of the people had died within like of the cohort that they were following. And they looked at their physical fitness. So how much objective exercise they did because they had all, you know, they'd recorded all this, they had measures of how much exercise they were actually doing. But they also did something really clever was they gave them a questionnaire that asked them, relative to your peers, how fit do you think you are? So that's mindset, right? Like how, how do you think you're fit? And what they found was the effect of mindset over like it was there was that predicted longevity their mindset how fit they thought they were relative to their peers 
it predicted their longevity over and above their objective level of exercise and controlling for smoking, drinking, all of these other factors. So their actual level of fitness objectively didn't matter. What mattered was how fit do you think you are compared to your peer group? Yeah. Yeah, it's like the food thing, right? It's like what you think about what you're doing or eating <laughs> is more important in in many ways than what's actually happening, isn't it? It's crazy, and I it's so lovely to hear that reinforced. And I I I really hope that everyone listening takes that to heart because I think it feels like magic to some people, but it's not. <laughs> right? Our mind is so powerful. So powerful. Well, I think the truth is is that believing that you're fit is actually available to anybody, right? And and people would say, yeah, but then I'm not being authentic because I'm actually not and I'm not in good shape. It's like, yeah, but that thought's available to you. And if you really believed that you were fit, I guarantee because our thoughts create the lens through which we see our experience and they basically create our... I mean, our thoughts create our experience of the world. We can't take in all the information. So it's the filtering system, right? It's like how we organize the universe. So if you believe that thought that I'm fit, right? You really owned it. I guarantee you'd start exercising more (laughs) and you probably would... You'd make that thought come true, Right, all of these thoughts are always available to us. Like I, this is what I say to my clients all the time. I'm like, in the smorgasbord of thoughts, like the buffet <laughs> of thoughts are in front of you. Why are you picking up the worst? Like you're picking up the worst ones, right? And we often do this. Like any thoughts available to you at all times, we can believe anything we want about ourselves. Yeah, it's radical. It is. It is, right? and that it's. I. It's such a, an amazing reinforcement. So thank you for sharing that. And I, I hate to come bring this to a close because I have so, so much more that I want to talk to you I'm about. Like, we, can, we can continue this conversation. I could geek out on this for hours. Oh my gosh, me too. <laughs> I, totally, I totally could. And, and maybe we'll, we'll bring you back for sort of a deeper dive into some of this because I think there's, there's so much here. But I, I love that just your reinforcement of choose the thoughts because they ultimately create the actions, right? I mean, we know this. Always. Always. Your actions are just derivative of your thoughts. That's right. So what's next for you? What are you excited about in, in your work and your practice? Um, I have to say, I love what I'm doing now. It's what I always wanted to do, which is to take this theoretical work and this theoretical knowledge and apply it in real people's lives. Because while I think we've done an amazing job in positive psychology, understanding the correlates of well-being and the components of well-being and with much more nuance and much greater understanding, um, and it's continuing to develop and become more sophisticated, which only makes it better for all of us. But it's a very different game um, when we're talking about educating ourselves versus applying it. That's totally different. And that's where I still think there are gaps. And I think that's where, you know, where the rubber meets the road when we actually need to apply this, right? Like we can know that mindset matters, but then the question is, as you're asking, you know, well, then how do you do it? Right. So to me, the puzzle of that, especially working with people in their lives, like that to me is just, it's like catnip, right? I just find that so fascinating and so fun. Like, how do I actually help someone take all of this empirical, you know, work, all this evidence, what we know to be true, right? How do we get, how do we help someone apply that in their life to transform their life, right? To help them live a life that's 
you know, freer and more fun and more aligned with their values and doing things they never imagined they'd be able to do, right? So gratifying. But that to me is really where it's at. And I think the science is still very young. I think we know so little about how our brain works. I think we know so little about habit formation and um, behavioral change. I mean, good Lord, it's like, we're just figuring stuff out. Like this is going to, the next 50 years, I'm guaranteed (laughs) our minds will be blown again and again and again, because we just know so little really. Yeah, about how yeah. we get someone to, um, like, what is it that helps someone radically change behavior? Like, how do you help people not live Groundhog's Day over and over and over again? That's right. Well, and it sounds like if you, well, let me just ask this question to wrap things up. Like, if you had to pick sort of one exercise or technique or whatever that we do know works right now, what would that be for people to take away? The one thing I think I would start with that I think is often overlooked and extremely important is that if you know that you have a narrative, right? Like I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not athletic enough, whatever that is, right? Whatever that not enoughness is, there's always a not enoughness narrative somewhere at the end of the thread. When you notice that you're telling yourself that story, because all it is, is just a fiction story that we've decided to take on. And you might say, no, no, no. I have lots of facts that prove it to be true. I'm like, okay, I hear you, but it's still a narrative. It's still a story. What I think is the most helpful first starting place is to, to just to say to yourself, I notice I'm thinking the thought that I'm not smart enough, or I notice that I'm telling myself the story that I'm just not good at this, or I'm not capable of change. Like just acknowledging that little step away from it, just to acknowledge that it's, it's a thought, it's a belief. It's not actually like that there's an essential you and then there's the observing self, right? But there's the essential self and the observing self. And the thoughts always coming from the observing self. So being able to just pull those two things apart, it's really surprising how much wider your aperture becomes you know, because you, you go almost completely blinded by the thought. Like yeah. you, you can't see any other evidence that it may not be true. That's right. But yeah. Just acknowledging like, okay, it's just a thought. Like it's just a story I have about myself, right? And just acknowledging that. And even that, just that little bit of wiggle room can create so much magic. I'm over here like nodding my head profusely because I have personally absolutely experienced that. So thank you for sharing that because I think that, yeah, just just the noticing is so powerful. So thank you for for leaving my listeners with that. Um, and hopefully, hopefully many of them will, will, will take that to heart. Yeah. So where can people learn more about you and your work? Um, you can find me. I'm only on Instagram. The handle is Dr. Sasha Hines, so D-R-S-A-S-H-A-H-E-I-N-Z, or my website, which is Dr. Sasha Hines, exactly the same way, .com. I expound a little bit more on this on my Instagram feed. It's all mindset. That's, I mean, I always start there. You got to work on your thoughts first. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'll put those links in the, in the show notes, but thank you so much for your time. This was completely amazing. And yeah, we'll, we'll definitely need to, we'll definitely need to do it again at some point. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of Women on the Rise. Visit lauradolch.com slash podcast for show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. You can download other episodes of this podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review the podcast. It really helps me out. This episode was produced by me with editing help from Dave Nelson at Lens Group Media. 
Tune in every week for new interviews that give you the practical tools you need to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. The Riveter is a women-forward workspace designed for community, work, and wellness. Not just a desk and a co-working space, The Riveter is a transformative movement for all women and their advocates to invite ambition. The Riveter provides the support, resources, and amenities to build successful businesses. Their members are entrepreneurs, remote workers, consultants, and everyone in between. They even have a community membership plan that provides access to professional development and fitness programming without the desk. The Riveter now has two locations in Seattle's Capitol Hill and Fremont. Neighborhoods, and a third location will open this year in LA. If you're interested, visit info.theriveter.co, that's CO, slash women on the rise for a special offer for women on the rise listeners. That's info.theriveter.co, slash women on the rise.